Hey everyone, Ed Helms here. You might know me as Andy from The Office or Stu from The Hangover, or you might know me as the co-founder of BGS. I know, I'm just as surprised as you. They let me co-found something. But here's the thing, we're doing it again. Yeah, this time we're leaping into our other deep love, the vast and vibrant world of country music with something we're calling Good Country. Now this isn't just another newsletter. Think of Good Country as a place. A place where you can explore, learn, and dig into all of what makes country good. Seriously, country music has so much going on these days, and it's coming from so many different deep and soulful places, and we're here to cover all of it. Just as we've done for Bluegrass and Roots Music at BGS for over a decade. So sign up now at goodcountrybgs.substack.com and let us bring you the many sides of country music straight to your inbox. Good country. It's a nice place to be. Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where They've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else. And then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with mm. other women and mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. I'm Cindy House, and I host this podcast. Before we get into Ethan Sitiawan, let's talk about ways that we can stay in touch. Okay, the best way to do it is to sign up for the Basic Folk monthly newsletter. You can do that at our website, basicfolk.com. Click on the red button. There's also a link in the show notes. There's a link in the show notes to follow us on social media. We're active on Facebook and Instagram at Basic Folk Pod. We're also a listener-supported podcast, and you can make a contribution at our website. There's also a link in the show notes to do that. You can go to the shop and get a Basic Folk beanie that are hand-knit by my mom. That's at basicfolk.com. Okay, let's get into it. Is mandolinist Ethan Satiawan 100 years old? The Indiana-born Satiawan's expert playing will fool you into thinking he's four times his actual age. Thanks to a supportive family and Mennonite community, Ethan came to the mandolin and folk music at an early age. His impressive proficiency and technical prowess landed him a full scholarship to Berklee College of Music in Boston. There, he was exposed to all different types of music and developed that natural rhythm and groove that only comes with being in musical community. His new instrumental album, Gambit, was produced by his mentor, the legendary fiddler Daryl Anger, best known for being in the original lineup for the David Grisman Quintet. Through Daryl, Ethan was able to work on a tradition of his own through music built from a foundation of bluegrass. He talks about that and he explains what the bluegrass vocabulary is on the mandolin for dum-dums like me who do not play music and are not folk scholars. Satiwan is an in-demand sideman and band member and can be seen playing with his band Corner House, Daryl Anger, and Tony Trishka, among others. Enjoy Ethan and get to know his new record, Gambit. We'll take a listen to this song from his new record. This is Back Dog, and then we'll get to Ethan Satiwan on Basic Folk.
Ethan Satiwan, thank you so much for joining us today on Basic Folk. Of course. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. So I found a couple of lines about how old you are. Um, Bluegrass Situation uh, had a great article on you and said the Berkeley College of Music grad could easily fool you into thinking he's much older than his years. And in your bio of your performance of the mandolin, it says Satiawan has a command of the instrument far beyond his 25 years. I feel like I've asked a few guests about how they feel about their age recently. So hopefully, like, if <laughs> listeners are like, here here she goes again. Um, but do you feel older? That Are you 25 now? I am still 25, yeah. Okay. Do you feel older than 25? Like, how do you relate to your age, and what has that relationship looked like throughout your life? Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I've always kind of been interacting with many different age groups, which I think is a really valuable thing to do, uh, to not just be kind of inside your own sort of peer group as far as age for your social circle, which, I, yeah, you know, age is a funny one for our society, I think. Um, I, we really place a lot of importance on it. I've never really worried about it too much, I guess. Um, I've always been, yeah, interested in hanging out with people from all kinds of different ages and situations there. But, you know, people say, you know, I'm mature or whatever. They say things like that. So, yeah, it's kind of been. They call you an old soul. Some, things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How annoying. Yeah, it's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> yeah. You are originally from Goshen, Indiana, and were raised Mennonite, just like your friend and mine, Sadie Gustafson Zook. Yes. Um, I found you on the Facebook group Mennofolk which is oh, really? <laughs> a wonderful intersection of Mennonites and folk arts. Um, yeah. How did your hometown and specifically your religion influence the type of musician you are? Totally, yeah. Um, the Mennonite church has a, a really amazingly beautiful singing tradition. There's a lot of emphasis on, on four-part harmony, choral harmony, and, and going to church on any given Sunday, any given church pretty much, you get a lot of really amazing singers um, singing in really beautiful harmony. So I think that that has kind of always been in my ear, you know, um, sort of choral harmony, which if you go back, you know, it takes you to Bach and, and music that I really love um, that's written for instruments other than, than the voice. But yeah, there's a lot of really deep musical tradition just uh, right there in front of you in, in the Mennonite church. But I also, I came up in sort of this really, uh, as you know, hippie, liberal Mennonite community, um, which was really open to music other than that sort of traditional choral thing, which was really fun for me to kind of be able to participate in that way um, from an early age, playing the mandolin. And um, yeah, definitely, I was part of some really supportive church communities in Goshen, which uh, is a huge important piece for any musician, just having that community that's willing to listen and, and, um, and help you out with, you know, whatever your musical journey takes you to. From, from what you can tell, is it still the same in Goshen or, or how has it changed? I think it's similar. Um, yeah, I haven't been super active in that community, um, in the past, however long, four or five years. Just seems like an important one since it's produced two of our faves. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sadie and uh, yourself. Totally. Yeah. I, um, I, I do love going back to Goshen and kind of seeing people in the area. I, I guess I just haven't been to a church in, in the last little while, but definitely going to Goshen, mm -hmm. um, and going anywhere, I'll run into people from those communities. And it's really always really nice to see those folks. Um, yeah, I mean, some of my earliest musical memories on the mandolin, um, had to do with with the church and hanging out in those spaces. Mm -hmm. So there's some there's some really important people to me who are who are in those communities that I get to see every once in a while when I'm back in town. You were one of three children who were homeschooled by folk loving parents, and I'd love to hear more about that. Can you set the scene for what music looked like in your house? Yeah, totally. So my mom plays piano, uh, took piano lessons, and 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 likes to play. Uh, you, you know, hymns and such and, and, and tunes. So that was kind of always there. So yeah, as far as the folk music, they they, they love stuff like 
um, Simon and Garfunkel, Peter, Paul, and Mary, um, that kind of folk artist. So we always had those tapes in the car, CDs and, and such. And yeah, you know, they also had this tape by a group that was called Harder to Do. So a bunch of their friends that um, worked up at this Mennonite camp in Michigan, um, my parents and, and, the, and the musicians in this band were all there at the same time. So that tape was in the car a lot. And oh, it was a, it was a band of their friends. Yeah, not them. They, they, my parents weren't in this band, but but um, yeah, right. their friends at this camp. You know, they would Cute. whatever do do music at the camp and uh, and play some play some gigs here and there. But there's mandolin on that on that tape, and I think that would be my first memory of of hearing the mandolin and, and kind of asking, "What is that instrument?" And they're like, "Well, I think it's the mandolin," <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's where it goes back to. When do you remember? I mean that memory that you just shared was lovely but like when do you remember first connecting with music as in like music that you liked independently from your family Mm -hmm. yeah um well so the first instrument i played was cello and my folks kind of said to each of us each of uh, me and my siblings when when you're eight or nine you'll you know you'll take lessons on an instrument you can choose like they there was you know some choice in the matter, but, but they were like, we'd like you to learn to play an instrument, which, which everybody was interested in and, and, and down to do. And so I chose the cello and yeah, I'm trying to think kind of when it first clicked because for a while it was sort of just going to lessons and practicing and it was okay. But I think probably when it, when I started to enjoy it was when I started playing with groups, you know, there were these string ensembles of a bunch of students at the community music school in Goshen. Um, so we would get together and, and um, they would, they would you know, teach us tunes and we'd play mm. different parts. And then I was in like a youth orchestra and a string quartet, and that was really fun. And then, yeah, when I started kind of actually the, the music that started to really grab me was was the, the Bach cello suites. That really, you know, that was maybe the first piece of music that I learned. It was Bach. It wasn't like it wasn't Black Sabbath. Uh, no. Or Blink-182. <laughs> no. no. Not Black Sabbath, not Blink-182. Bach. Yeah. Bach. Okay. <laughs> the, the minuets from the first cello suite are in one of the Suzuki cello books. And I learned those and I remember, yeah, that was really a, a beautiful, they are beautiful pieces of music. And it just felt, it felt like real music, if you know what I mean. Everything else, mm-hmm. other music that I played alone on the cello, I like, I mean, it's music and, and, and there's beautiful ways to play it. But the thing with Bach is that it's just, if you're playing some of the solo cello or violin suites, you have these complete pieces of music. There's nothing else required beyond you playing this, mm. this instrument. And, and that was really cool. And how old were you when you were like, Bach, this is it? Yeah, probably like 13, 14. And that was around the time that I started playing the mandolin as well. And how were you listening to Bach? Were you playing playing it or did you listen to it on, on CDs or anything? Yeah, uh, both. The The thing with the Suzuki method, just in brief, is sort of that you, you listen to things on repeat and you get them in your ear and then the idea is to be able to play them by ear oh, um, okay. pretty quickly. Okay. And so there's definitely a lot of listening to these pieces, but then, but yeah, just um, it's really satisfying to play. And I still find that that Bach is is a really satisfying music to play just because it's so complete. So playing it on the cello was a really cool moment. What was like your, um, you know, in, in learning to, to play the cello and learning to play the mandolin as a, as a young person, especially at your age, like how did the internet play into that learning, in, into your learning style? Hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel like it played into it all that much, actually. My, my folks like, were- Did you have access? to it? Were your parents letting you log on to AOL? <laughs> uh, not quite so much, actually. We, we lived a pretty tech-free life for a lot of my childhood until I was about... Oh, so you're like um, you're like a, an exennial. You're like an elder millennial. I am, yeah. And that's kind of, going back to the age <laughs> thing, I would, you know, I would hang out with, um, with, with Sadie, you know, and kind of, she's, I guess, two years older than me. Um, so I'd hang out with Sadie and, and, uh, sort of her friends at Goshen college, um, the college in town there. And so I was always sort of around people older than me for a lot of the time. Um, 
so yeah, it's it's uh, as far as the the whole generation thing goes, it's it's kind of a funny place that I've landed. But um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I think I really value kind of an upbringing that was light on tech, and and I definitely use it a lot now, and, and it's a great tool, of course. Mm-hmm. Do you design your own websites? Um, I have in the past, but I, I have passed it off recently. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cause that, like your website and corner house's website have the same kind of like really nice aesthetic. Right. Right. Well, that would be Louise Bicken who, who, um, who is ah. in corner house and, uh, yeah, she did Louise's mine as well. Aesthetic. Exactly. Yeah. I, I trust her far more than I trust my aesthetic. So yeah, that's a mutually <laughs> beneficial. <laughs> Good for All me. All right. Thank you for the deep dive into your, into your tech and website talk yeah Um, of course back to the back to the other stuff okay community and collaboration are a through line in your story so you grew up in a supportive community and have found that community through music when did you realize its importance and how has community changed for you over the years yeah I mean I count myself lucky to kind of be part of a bunch of different communities um, of course, we've been talking about the hometown crowd in Indiana, which is a really beautiful scene. Um, but there's also this really extensive bluegrassy acoustic folk community that um, is really beautiful, just in that it's really spread out all across the states and across the world. It's spread out, but it's small. You know, it really feels small and, and pretty tight. Um so if you know people in Maine, there's definitely somebody that you also know in Alaska that you'll get connected with if, if, yeah. uh, if needs be, or if you want to be, you know? Um, mm-hmm. so cool. yeah, that, that, um, that scene is really, really special. And I count myself lucky to be a part of it. So going back to finding your instrument, you did talk about how you tried out several instruments before you got to the mandolin you played cello, banjo, ukulele. How did you know that these other instruments weren't for you and that you should keep looking as opposed to like, nose to the grindstone, I'm just going to work through this banjo thing? Yeah, totally. So I guess the first, well, I, I, I had a couple little um, flirtations with different instruments. Um, I guess Ooh. first would have been the mountain dulcimer, <laughs> which, you know, oh, all right. that left out. Yeah. <laughs> Kind of funny. Um, but yeah, you know, I was interested in this in sort of playing fiddle tunes, folk music. And I don't even really remember how the Mountain Dulcimer came to be. But somehow, uh, you know, we got a cardboard one. Um, they make these Mountain Dulcimers out of cardboard <laughs> with, um, you with know, actual with the, strings. Yeah. So like so the fretboard is wood. There's this like wooden stick on top of it with tuners and frets and whatever. But then like the resonating box, the body is cardboard. <laughs> so... Wow. I had one of those. Is it from Ikea? Uh, it could be. Yeah, it kind of looks like that. Um, <laughs> no, I got it from this little music store in uh, Shipshawana, the, uh, you know, the Amish town in, in Indiana, northern Indiana. Oh, of course. Shipshawana. Yeah, exactly. You must know it. Um, yes. Lovely. Y- yes. Uh, so, yeah, Mountain Dulcimer. And I was playing these fiddle tunes, but um, the Mountain Dulcimer is not a chromatic instrument. It's a it's a diatonic instrument, so it's pretty limited in terms of what keys it plays. What is that? What does diatonic mean? Diatonic is um, in a key, so basically you can play in D or G on a Mountain Dulcimer. Um, okay. And and chromatic. So would, it's limited. Yeah, exactly. Just like what you just said. Uh, I'm sorry. I'll just listen now. From no, here. no, no. It's okay. It's good. <laughs> good to clarify that stuff. With, with a chromatic instrument like a mandolin or a guitar or a banjo, um, you have all the notes, you know, you can play in any key. And, and for folk music, it makes a lot of sense to have a diatonic instrument that only plays in certain keys, because that's often most of what you might want to do. But I was interested in playing fiddle tunes that went beyond D and G, basically. <laughs> um, mm. And so I had this other thing with the ukulele. There is this, I was part of this homeschool community, um, that basically met two days a week and kind of had a, a quasi school for a bunch of the kids um, in these families. And one of the dads in that group started a ukulele choir. So that was a chromatic instrument. So that was that was cool for me to kind of be able to play songs in many different keys. But it it's not really a melody instrument per se. So I was kind of looking for this melody. So I'm kind of, you know, wending my way through a bunch of 
options to to uh, to the mandolin eventually, um, which mm. is tuned in fifths like the cello. So that was a really easy transition, and it's used in fiddle music and. I wanted to play something with a pick for some reason, and uh, I hear and, yeah. you love picks. <laughs> I, I do love picks. Yeah, yeah, the bluegrass situation. I uh, really kind of <laughs> had a field day with that. That was good. So. When you came to the mandolin, you loved it, and it sounds like you really liked how small it was. You said it was small, but packed a bigger punch than the ukulele. How do you still relate to that punch the mandolin provides and the initial feeling you had when you first connected to the instrument? Yeah, totally. Um, I think I was talking about punch in sort of a a, a vague sense with that statement, just um, in that the ukulele felt more limited, but the mandolin has a lot of uh, sort of rhythmic capability that I really enjoy working mm-hmm. with now. Um, so that's cool. Um, that's kind of a literal punch, I guess, in some ways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was interested in this folk music back then. That was kind of the initial thing, but um, I've really been playing a, many different kinds of music um, or at least music from many different parts of the world recently. And something like the banjo um, is really limited, it feels to me, um, tonally, right? It kind of sounds a certain way and it's expected to play certain kinds of music for the most part. And and the mandolin has, it definitely fits into bluegrass in old time and, and that's kind of where I started from. But uh, simply the quality of the sound is not quite as uh, specific as some other instruments. How does it feel to express yourself through the mandolin? Like the mandolin does seem like a pretty powerful instrument and I don't know you, but you seem like a very like even keeled, dry sense of humor type of person (laughs) just from talking to you for a half an hour. But like, how do you feel like the mandolin is an extension of your personality or it allows you to like express different sides of your personality. Yeah, totally. Well, I, I like, it's, it's an interesting thing, like expression in, in, in any kind of music and kind of what it's been for me is to like work on really specific things in practice. And then on the gig, it's sort of, who knows what could happen at, at that point. It's, it's, we, we just were out there playing and, and trying stuff. So yeah, working on really specific rhythms. I've been really into the South American music, a lot of different uh, styles down there. Choro is a big mandolin style that comes from Brazil. A lot of really beautiful yeah. melodies and rhythms there. And then I've been playing quite a bit of Venezuelan music recently and some Argentinian music and Peruvian music. And just kind of taking some of those ideas and the way that they feel time, feel eighth notes, which is so different to North American music mm. and, and just trying to integrate that a little bit in, into how I play rhythm, play backup for, um, you know, I, I'm in, I'm here in Vermont on tour with Louise Bick and we're, we're just playing duo. And so I'm always trying to think about how to back up a fiddle player, you know, and doing that in different ways and, and just trying to really get inside that a little bit, I guess, drawing from a lot of different wells um, and, and trying to really dig deep into things in my personal practice and then getting to the gig, which maybe people kind of think that like, that's where you really express yourself. And that's probably true to some degree, but also anytime you play music, you're expressing yourself artistically as well. But I guess the gig or the recording session is where it becomes public. Um, so yeah, just really trying to let the ears be open all the time and, mm. and, and follow threads where they might lead. You entered Berkeley a very technically oriented musician, but after being around many different styles and musicians, your horizons were broadened. And that's great. That's what college is supposed to do. So can you talk about what it was like for you to evolve from a precise and technical player into what you became? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I, I do think that good technique and facile technique is the underpinning of, of, you know, being expressive, right? You have to be able to play what you hear to, in order to 
make it <laughs> have people hear it. Um, so I definitely do value my time spent working on technique and I do still work on it. Um, but going to Berkeley and just being around all those musicians, students and faculty alike, who all have such diverse tastes and listen to such different music was really valuable. I mean, uh, Joe K. Walsh, the mandolinist, I took a lot of lessons from him at Berkeley and, and he was always really good about saying, about, you know, listening to what I liked and, and working on stuff with me that I was interested in, but also saying, you know, check out so-and-so, check out the um, Bill Frizzell and Fred Hirsch do a record or the, uh, mm. you know, Jim Hall and Bill Evans do a record, which um, was a very different take on, on jazz and music than I had really kind of been interested in up to that point. And then, yeah, uh, I mean, I was talking about the South American music just a little bit ago, and I'm in a band with Maurizio Fiore Salas and Noah Harrington, called the Acoustic Nomads. And and Mauricio's from Venezuela and is really into all of that South American music. So How long has this band been together? Let's see. I think we first made a recording and started playing shows in twenty nineteen. Oh, okay. Um so we've been around for a little bit and and we've we've been doing some stuff this year. It's it's been picking up a little bit, which is it's really fun to play with those folks. Great challenge for me. Um going back mm. to sort of that, you know, working on some of that music um, and trying to get inside of that. But, you know, I I would definitely not have gotten as far into that music without those two people, you know. And then mm -hmm. playing with Louise has really, um, and Casey Murray in Corner House, um, has really gotten me interested in sort of Celtic, Scottish, Irish, um, Swedish, uh, Norwegian, all that kind of um, fiddle music from, from those countries. And... Yeah, you know, it's it's funny to think I I actually did sort of consider going to Goshen College, um, depending on how things would have worked out with Berkeley if if the situation had been a little different. And it's so interesting to think what kind of a musician in person, you know, you would be mm -hmm. if you had made a different choice like that. Right. Open door two instead of door one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Was it uh touch and go with Berkeley or, or did you get in, you know, smooth sailing for your, for your admissions? Um, no, it, it was pretty, it was pretty painless. I, I ended up auditioning twice and, and, um, financially they made it work for me. So, um, so I ended up at Berkeley. Yeah. That's great. In hearing that you came to college very technical, it makes me wonder what has been your relationship to messing up and making mistakes? Yeah, totally. Um, I think that I was probably a lot more, I kind of go back and forth actually, but I think that I, overall I've become less, less worried about making mistakes, so to speak. I think, I think that my bar for mistake is pretty low. I, <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, you know, if, um, on a recording session, recordings are interesting because you're sort of creating something that'll last for forever. So, I do get a little more neurotic about that kind of thing. But um, mm -hmm. if something doesn't go to plan, but uh, but it still works, I don't worry about that really at all anymore. Um, if the moment feels good, I'm, I'm in pretty much. I did this camp in Savannah for a couple of years, uh, Savannah, Georgia, called the Acoustic Music Seminar. And I got to work, I was lucky to work with Julian Lodge quite a bit there, the great guitar player. Mm. Um, cool guy, Julian Lodge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's him. And I th I think that, that was a big thing that I kind of took from him is that like, as long as people's ears are open and everyone's listening in the moment, it's hard to make a mistake per se. And of course, being on one side of the creative process, as opposed to the, you know, being on the on the creation side of the creative process, as opposed to the listening side, the, the end product side is a very different experience, of course. So yeah, yeah. The new album, Gambit, was produced by legendary fiddle player Daryl Anger. Uh, some of his CV includes that he was a founding member of the David Grisman Quintet. He co-founded a couple bands like Psycho Grass, Mr. Sun, and he also plays on the Car Talk theme song. Did you know that? I did know that, yes. Yeah, everybody knows that. Uh, he seems like a huge influence in your musical life, and you met him when you were in high school. What influence had 
he had on you previously and like what was that first meeting like for you? Yeah, I mean I think when I first met Daryl it wasn't it wasn't super it wasn't super deep. Um I think it must have been at um one of the fiddle camps around the country, maybe the Swananoi gathering. Um but I've always loved his playing, of course. Um mm-hmm. but I don't think we really connected until I was in college. You know, he taught at Berkeley for several years. And so when I was in school, um yeah, you know, we went and got a piece of pizza after an ensemble and uh and he hired me for a couple of holiday gigs. Um, Here's that pizza again. At the pizza, changing, yeah, changing I, lives. I do love pizza, so yeah, me and Daryl are eating pizza, and then and then we go and play these holiday gigs. And um, the next year, I took a bunch of lessons from Daryl um, and took an ensemble, so really got to work with him uh, quite a bit that next year and and played um, played a gig that was really fun. Putting together um, him and uh, his late partner Emmy Phelps put together a beautiful record of covers from the 60s and 70s um, called Music of Our People. Uh, that's a great record. And yeah, Daryl has a great knack for sort of arranging things and, and making music really fun. And mm-hmm. I think w- one of the other things that stood out to me about those gigs is that I personally really felt, and I think that other people have had similar experiences, is that playing with Daryl kind of makes me feel the most like myself uh, when, when I'm, when I'm in that situation with him, which obviously felt like a great choice for a producer, um, go with somebody who really kind of draws a lot out of, out of a person. And he was interested to do it. And, and, uh, we made a record and yeah, it was a really great experience. Um, here's a question. Do you have a mandolin nearby? Because I think you might need it to answer this question. I do. Yeah, it's right over here. Okay. So first, let me ask the question and then see if you need it. Mm. Okay. Because also, I just want to let you know, I'm not a musician. And I feel like the people that listen to Basic Folk are not musicians. So that's why we might need okay. an audio answer. But Sure. Okay. So on bluegrass and how it remains the foundation of your music, you told BGS that bluegrass vocabulary on the mandolin is really the basis of most of my writing and my playing, and I think that comes through on the record almost more in the way that we approach the tunes and treat how we play the tunes more than the compositions themselves. I got to tell you, I looked at that sentence for like 10 minutes, and I'm like, what does this mean? So if you could just (laughs) break that down a little bit more, can you, in layman's terms explain what the bluegrass vocabulary is on the mandolin and how do you see bluegrass in your approach and treatment of the tunes yeah totally this is where we might need the instrument sure i'll get the mandolin real quick let me let me grab that (laughs) okay what kind of pick you got there ethan this is actually um All of the Ethan Satiwan stands are, do you think that they're excited about this or are they rolling their eyes? Because they're like, here we go again. Here we go. Yeah. He's a about bluegrass to, lesson. A bluegrass lesson. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, we've got this Torlon pick here, which is, you know, there's this, been this whole wave of really fancy aerospace plastics used for picks. Um, yeah, this is one of them. <laughs> Maybe my friend Ben in Cambridge. Um, cool. Yeah. I mean, so like sort of how bluegrass came to be was, um, you know, it's interesting in that you can trace it back to one person, Bill Monroe, who, you know, it's, it's not often you could say this, but I think you can pretty definitively say he invented bluegrass and, and it hasn't changed all that much since he did so. Yeah. It kind of, it got codified really early on and it's kind of stuck that way, but kind of the way he did it, he truly sort of took the music that he liked, all of his influences and, and put it together into, into a, a, you know, his own thing, which is the attitude that I've kind of carried into making this record and, and into a lot of my music making in general for most of my career thus far. Um, taking all the music that I like, and it's not even so conscious, I don't think. Um, it's more just me chasing my ear and chasing the sounds that I want to hear. Yeah, so there's a lot of different bluegrass stuff. There's the really sort of, you know, classic fiddle tunes. 
which is sort of the Appalachian string bit music that came from Scotland and Ireland. Um, those a lot of those tunes. Um, and Bill also took a, actually quite a bit of influ- influence from rock and roll, kind of early rockabilly kind of stuff. You get mm. tunes like. sound like that um which yeah that's kind of the bluegrass vocabulary i guess you know there's all this really bluesy stuff along with the the beautiful fiddle tunes and you can kind of you know you can generalize it down to that those two things meeting um in a lot of ways one of the most direct compositional parallels i can draw is sort of this idea of fiddle tune structure um where you sort of you take whiskey before breakfast this fiddle tune It's like you have you have two phrases right that you've heard in this part. Um, give the first half of the first phrase and the second half of the first phrase. We call those A and B. And then in the second phrase, you get A again, and then you get something different to end with. So you get a C, uh-huh. you know, kind of microsection. And I definitely kind of taken a lot of ideas from that and sort of like how to structure composition, structure tunes. Oh, cool. Um, and and right you can you can go really super deep with that, of course. Um, you could, sure. <laughs> you could go like into all kinds of micro levels, but kind of in brief, that's the idea that I kind of used to write a lot of tunes. Oh, that's cool. Um, you have oh, thank you for bringing that. Does that mandolin have a name? Uh, Big red. It's it's very red. You can't you can't really see yeah. it. Um, I mean, Cindy can Beautiful. see it, but uh, yeah, I can see it. It is red. <laughs> Indeed, can confirm. So you've talked about like tradition not being static, like tradition as a living thing. Um, and when you worked with Daryl on the new album, you were, you know, have talked about how he's a player who has kind of created his own tradition. Um, and this is your first album of original material. So you're, you're kind of... Um, pioneering your own tradition. So how has your definition of tradition changed since recording Gambit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, um, Daryl put it really nicely. Um, this, this record really kind of feels like an overview of a lot of, you know, the tradition that like Daryl was a big part of creating or David Grisbin, Bela Fleck, um, people like this who who laid the groundwork for a lot of the tunes that I've now written. Um, so, yeah, I do think that there's a, a beautiful tradition of sort of these kinds of tunes. Um, I don't have a great name for it. Uh, some people use new acoustic music, which I don't really love. That sounds lame. Yeah, it's it's a little... It's hard. It's, I, yeah, it's hard to put a name on it, but yeah. Yeah, I relate to this because there is like... I work in radio, and the format that I work in is called AAA, Uh which means adult album alternative. And it's like (laughs) such a mishmash of like what that could possibly mean. And it's like the worst name ever. So and nobody has like sat down to actually like think of a new good name, you know, because also like who has time for that? Ethan, you're too busy. Right. Totally. a, A new name for this. But anyway, sorry, I digress. Totally. No, no, I think that's, that's a, that's, I hear that. That's, um, yeah, I hate, I hate trying to put a label on it. So I've kind of tried to refrain as much as possible. And I mean, you end up calling it folk music, which I I guess technically it would be folk music, but that doesn't feel super, but anyway, um, yeah, I think that like, it's interesting just being in a continuum of, of musicians because like things keep getting refined, you know, uh, people's tune writing gets more and more sophisticated and, and complex and, and, and pure over time. And, you know, as, as an individual and also as a style, you know, the, um, all these beautiful tunes have been written by, by many different people already. And there's a lot of people out there kind of still building on that and bringing their own thing to the table. So, yeah, I think it's really, it's, it's really a, a good time to be, making this kind of music a really uh, invigorating time to be doing it. That's so rad. Yeah. Um, Okay. In working with 
Daryl, I found this quote that said, Satiwan found that he was able to make the most musical choices for each tune because of Daryl leaving academic influences aside, which sounds like a, I don't know how hard it was for you to like work through being too academic in your music, but what does your threshold and desire to take risks musically look like now? Hmm. Yeah, I think some of that kind of goes back to like feeling really comfortable around Daryl um, and comfortable in like making choices, making musical choices and decisions. And I think, yeah, I think I probably am a little more willing to kind of go for things than I used to be at, on balance, at least. I also think, again, it's about following the music where it wants to go for whatever ensemble it is one happens to be playing with mm-hmm. um, and trying to always make the best choices for the music of the moment. And and if the thesis of the music is to kind of try a lot of crazy things, then that's what we'll do. And if the thesis of the music is to like play a fiddle tune six times in a row, then we'll, we'll, we'll do that. And, and sort of just by merit of the people that you choose to play music with, you get very different sort of results at the end of those processes. Can you imagine what you're going to be like when you're like 65 years old? I can't know. I can't. It's going to be crazy. Wow. I don't know what that's I'm really excited for that. Well, I'll be like a hundred. So let's take our time getting there. Perfect. Um, Patreon. So you have a Patreon and I have a question about it, but it's, it's more of like a, a bigger question than just having a Patreon. So you offer transcriptions on your Patreon and you offered live streams of your practice sessions. Did that uh, did you actually do that? I did. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of eased back on that. That was a, a deep COVID sort of thing, but yes, I did. What did you learn from opening your practices up to fans? Like, was it a vulnerable experience for you? Yeah, it was interesting because I, I would just do it on Facebook actually, um, and people would be there and tune in and and they would ask questions, which which is kind of interesting to like be practicing and working on stuff. And then you, you know, you read the comments or whatever. And somebody says, how would you play over? Well, somebody asked actually about one of Daryl's tunes. It's called ride the wild Turkey. Of course. That old classic. Exactly. What a chestnut. Uh, so, (laughs) so somebody asked about ride the wild Turkey and how to play over it. Uh, it has this kind of, uh, weird B part that is sort of a normal phrase length. So wait, that's a fiddle, t- the fiddle tune, right? It's like a fiddle tune. how to tune. play mandolin. Uh, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How to solo okay. over it, I guess. How to improvise over that fiddle tune um, was the question. And the B part is kind of funny. You know, it's not, it's not irregular. It's a kind of a, a normal phrase length, but it's set up in a funny way so that it feels really off kilter. People got to see me kind of work through that and, and I, I you know, it's it, when I when I slow down and really start to work on things, I start to tear stuff apart, and I, I can you know at this point I can fake my way through a lot of things, <laughs> but if I sit down and work on something, it's not about faking your way through whatever. And of course, faking mm-hmm. your way eventually is just knowing how to play things and do, you know fake it till you make it in in the most true of senses. Such a cornerstone of learning. Yeah, fake of course. Fake it till you make it. Of course, yeah. I mean, it really, it doesn't really mean anything, I, I don't think, you know, if you, if you fake it and nobody knows that you're faking it, that it that, did you really fake it? <laughs> right. So you play sideman to Daryl Anger and also Tony Trishka, among others. You have a couple of bands that we've talked about, including the quartet Corner House. And in Corner House's bio, it reads, The quartet's unique strength is their desire to learn from one another, not only in musical skill and style, but in life experience, such that every challenge overcome by one band member becomes part of the group's shared musical and personal DNA. That sounds awesome. What does your growth look like thanks to this particular characteristic of Corner House? Yeah, um, Corner House is interesting because, like I kind of said a little earlier, Louise and Casey in the band are coming from either the contradance tradition or the Scottish fiddle tradition and sort of all the offshoots of that, Irish music, 
uh, Scandinavian music, that sort of thing. And then um, the guitarist, who is also Ethan, Ethan Hawkins and myself, um, come from a more bluegrass American music background. So that band has always been about, like, how do we play together? How do we make this work? And we've definitely sort of forged our own way to sort of play music together. But a big part of that early on was how do we play each other's music? You know, how do we kind of understand how we all work? So, yeah, that's been a really cool thing about that band, just being able to dig deep into, you know, again, different styles that I wouldn't otherwise play very much of or you know, necessarily play very much of and and really stretch ourselves that way. Um, and I think that we take that through to, you know, our other experiences as a band, you know, really working together on touring and, and being out there and making records and all that stuff. And yeah. Maine. You live in Cornish, Maine. Indeed. Which is a cute little town in the outskirts of Portland in southern Maine. Anna Tivill's sister lives in Maine. Do you know her? Uh, no, I don't. Well, she's a, I think she's like a wedding and event planner. Oh, so cool. So if you need any events planned, her stuff looks great. Great. Anywho, what brought you there to Maine versus a music town like, like Nashville? Why do you remain? Is this your forever home? Do you want to hang out when I move to Maine in January? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, yes. Yeah, I um, let's see. I ended up moving to Maine during the pandemic uh, after moving out of Boston. And the original idea was to move to Portland, Maine, um, which is a, a fun city and a, a nice little music scene over there. You know, the idea was to be right in the city, but um, that didn't happen for various reasons. And so I ended up out in the country a little bit, still being really connected to the Boston scene and the Portland scene as far as musical communities um, in the geographical area. And honestly, it's been great. It's been great to be sort of out in the country uh, with a lot of space. I like to fish. I actually just went fishing with uh, somebody I met at the show last night over here in Vermont. So it's been really great to kind of be out in nature, some, especially kind of during pandemic times a couple years ago, mm -hmm. uh, really deep pandemic times at least. And it, you know, it's actually a really great place to sort of come back to after being on the road. It's, it's really, when I'm, when I'm really busy, like I have been this year and I'm out every weekend, just about, um, if I come home for three days or four days, just being out in this house in the country has been a really amazing thing to come home to, uh, kind of to my surprise, but yeah, it's been great. Awesome. Do you have time for a lightning round? Oh yeah, go ahead. Definitely. Okay. Here we go. What is your karaoke song? Oh man, <laughs> not for everyone karaoke. Um, Cloudy, Paul Simon, or Simon and Garfunkel. What is your favorite instrument to accompany the mandolin? Uh, it's been really fun playing with cello players, actually, recently. Where is the best coffee? Uh, I would say that Maddie Whitler makes the best coffee. Ooh, all right. Okay, this is a controversial question. Good. What is your favorite music camp? Oh, that is a, that is a controversial one. Uh, actually, I have an answer. I think it would be the Ospie Valley String Camp. Um, this camp nice. that happens in July. Yeah, really fun. Really great. I can't. I've heard so much about Ossipee from Carolyn mm -hmm. Hendrick. She it's really good. has told me about it. Yeah, I'd like to go. Next, yeah. next year, I'm there. Yeah, do it. Okay, very important question. Dogs or cats? Cats. Whoa. Okay, <laughs> we are definitely hanging out. Oh, great. <laughs> Good. <laughs> What's the last book you read? I just read a book. What is it called? I don't even know what it's called. It's from like 2012. It's like a profile of uh, a bunch of different fancy restaurants in Maine um, from 2012. I don't know if they're all around still, but that it, at least, you know, 11 years ago, these were the hot restaurants in Maine. <laughs> That's so funny. You're like, here's what I'm going to do. An 11-year-old yeah. restaurant guide. You know, it was all the library has. The, the, you know, the Cornish <laughs> library, so. <laughs> I'm going to mail you a book. Oh, thanks. Um, what TV show are you currently obsessed with? Oh, man. I don't really watch a lot of TV. But I've been, um, this is a, a little bit of a tangent, but um, I've been playing the new uh, Legend of Zelda game on Nintendo okay. Switch. That's, that's kind of the closest parallel, I think. That, yeah. yeah, I've heard about it. Uh, okay. What is the best road snack? 
Hmm. I've been really into almonds lately. Hmm. What is your most useful non-musical skill? Hmm. Starting a fire. Where is your favorite fishing spot? I love the Osprey River, Brighton Cornish. How convenient. Exactly. Okay, this is the last question. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever been? Oh wow. Um, Corner House went to Scotland on tour several years ago, and there was this really cool show, basically on you know on the ocean on this um, on this little sound um, of water on the west coast of Scotland, kind of near the Isle of Skye. And so you know, basically the the show was nice, and, and it was in this little cabin. But then just going outside there. There's sort of this sound, and then there's a big mountain, and、um, it's really kind of beautiful and wooded around there. There was an otter.、Uh, that was pretty good.、Oh, there's an otter. There's an otter. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Ethan Satiwan, thank you so much for talking to me today. Congratulations on the new record. Yes, of、Can't、course. Thank、hang. you for having me. Yeah, definitely. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Our music composed by Alex Stanton. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there, wherever you get podcasts. You can search on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk, or you can check out our website, BasicFolk.com. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed this episode and you know other Mando Lin nerds, please send them Ethan's episode. They'll really enjoy it, and they'll be, and then they'll play mandolin at your next event, which is what everyone wants. Am I right? Yeah, I'm right. Okay, we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.